Thanks, John. Uh, as John mentioned, we are looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through to 31. Um, you can either open up in uh, your Bible a device, or as John said, the words shall be on the screen. So, Mark 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud on your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. As an ordained Anglican minister, occasionally my job involves running a funeral uh, sometimes when I run a funeral, uh, I might wear my clergy collar, you know, the little white, we call it the dog collar. Yep. Uh, it sort of helps people know what I'm doing and, and why I'm there. And uh, one of the interesting things that can happen when running a funeral is I can see the entire spectrum of responses that people have to church and Christianity. See, I represent church and Christianity because I've got the collar. And as I stand at the door at the end of the funeral and people walk out, you get this whole gamut of responses. Um, sometimes if it's a Christian funeral and there's a Christian person, they say, thank you so much, brother. You know, Jesus was on it. I, he, she, referring to the deceased person, would have been really proud of that. Thank you. Then you get the one that I kind of like is the, the Aussie Bogan sort of response. Oh, mate, that was beautiful. Thank you, bro. Oh, man. Sometimes they hug you, you know. <laughs> All right. You get the regular, thank you, mate, just handshake. For some reason, I've had a couple, like there was a lady that's, that went like this and went, bless you, Father. I'm not a Catholic, but all right, whatever. There was a guy who, you know, stood there and did this as he walked past. There's the kind of cold responses, though, because, you know, they're not happy with the fact that you've, you've spoken about Jesus and the afterlife. There's like a handshake and then a go. And the one that really sticks out in my mind is there was this, uh, this lady once who, looked at me really sort of like dead on staring, you know, to get my full attention. And then when she had it, just turned the shoulder and gave a scowl, like wanted me to feel her, her wrath. Uh, people can have all sorts of responses to church and to Christianity, and I get to see it all in one go. Friends, today in a short time, I'm going to explain 
what is at the heart of true biblical Christianity and of church. You see, if you get this, you will get Christians and church. And no matter what your view may be when you walk out, you'll at least be able to say it's a bit more informed than what it was when you walked in. But before I begin, I've got to make a really big disclaimer, which should probably work out. I have a huge bias. I think being a follower of Jesus is the greatest thing you can do. It's the greatest thing I've done. And I want you to become a follower of Jesus. I want you to become a Christian. Uh, I gain, there's, there's nothing in it for me other than my great joy, right? It's not like I'm going to get you know, a pay rise if someone becomes a Christian or something like that, right? That's, that's just my job. Uh, and I will actually be inviting you to do that at the end of this talk. At the end of this talk, I'm going to have a prayer up and I'll be inviting people who as yet are not followers of Jesus to become a follower of Jesus. I want to be really upfront and clear about that. With that out of the way, like Jono said, let's go to the source, to the instruction manual. If we can't work it out from here, we might as well all go home. You've just heard the Bible reading. The guy uh, in this Bible reading is one that Christians commonly refer to as the rich young ruler. It so happens there are actually three accounts of this meeting in the Bible. One in Mark, the gospel we got now, one in Matthew, another gospel, and one in Luke. In Matthew, he's young. In Luke, he's a ruler. And in all of them, he's rich. So we call this guy the rich young ruler. The first thing to notice is that this rich young ruler has what the Bible writers would have considered to be the best approach, the ideal approach to Jesus. Look again at the words, they'll be on the screen behind me. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, notice, first of all, that the guy ran. If you're a ruler in Palestine in the first century and you're a Jew, running is undignified. As a matter of fact, sometimes with the clothing that you wear, you would have to, and this is an expression, gird up your loins in order to run. And then he falls on his knees. Again, complete humility in a very public way. And he knows that eternal life is real. There really is a heaven and a hell. And he knows even better than that, that Jesus is the one to look to when it comes to the question of eternal life. This, according to the Bible, is the absolute best way that someone can approach Jesus. Oh, that more Australians would approach Jesus like this. Humble, knowing eternal life is in the balance, and knowing that he's the one who has something significant to do with it. Now, when Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? Because no one's good except God alone. My reckoning here is that it's actually just an acceptable, pious thing to have said for a Jewish person in a Jewish culture. You see, he does call him good and Jesus is good. But anyone who gets called good will just want a little reminder that we're talking, there's always a difference, I guess, between what we might call human goodness or goodness according to God's law and absolute goodness, the righteousness of God. 
We don't know how this guy responded to that particular uh, little word from Jesus, but I can imagine them both nodding, yes, of course, and, and then the conversation proceeds. But not only does this guy have the absolute best approach to Jesus, we now find out he's also probably the most impressive person that the disciples have ever met, apart from Jesus himself. Next verse, ten nineteen. Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud on your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I'm going to level with you guys. My first instinct, which I suspect is the first instinct of a number of us here, is something like, what a load of rubbish! Oh my goodness, this guy's a clown. As if he's... Really? You've never dishonoured your mother and father? You've never told a little white lie? This is the guy's undoing. I can see why this is in the Bible. It's to rubbish this dude and be over and done with. That's my instinct. Why do I have that instinct? Because I know that I would never have been able to keep these. I know I have dishonoured mother and father. I know I have defrauded. I know that I have not always borne true witness and testimony, right? That's the same for all of us. But what is Jesus' first instinct? To this guy, well, look at the next few words. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, at one level, that's not surprising. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus has a love for you and for me far more profound than you could ever possibly imagine. But Jesus also loves righteousness. And the Gospel writer, Mark decides to include this little detail here to make it clear that this rich young ruler is, I think, speaking the truth. He really has kept the commands of God since he was a boy. It is extremely rare, but the Jewish people, even to this day, have a word for a person like this. Uh, the word is it's called a tzaddik, uh, a literally righteous person. It's just the Hebrew word for righteous. They do exist. Noah, for example, you know the guy in the ark with the flood? He was described as a tzaddik, a righteous person. Job, there's a whole book of, uh, called Job. He was righteous and God-fearing. There's a guy in the New Testament named Simeon who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Possibly Anna, who was with Simeon, could, could, you can make an argument that she was righteous too. And the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, a guy we call the Apostle Paul, is described as being, under the law, blameless, righteous, blameless. It's extremely rare, but there are people in the Bible who the Jews would have called a Sadiq. Now, just for funsies, when I was um, young and I had to go to synagogue and Judaism school, uh, one of the classes we had were led by this couple and I kid you not, they were meant to be a couple. Their names, because they're Israeli, were Esti and Asti. <laughs> and sadly for me, you know how sometimes something happens when you're a kid and the memory stays in your head for a long time and when you think about it as, as an adult, you go, that is the weirdest, crazy memory that I have. Well, I've got a memory of Esti speaking about something to do with tzaddik. Hebrew is a gender, gendered language, so when it's feminine, it's, it's tzaddikah, right? So tzaddik, tzaddikah. And... 
we had these little donation boxes to give money to, to support political causes in Israel, and she would come and start the class dancing around with this little box and shaking it. And she'd go, did you bring some money, some money, some money? Did you bring some money for Sadaka today? That is for your righteous act today. I can't... Like, how do I go to sleep at night with that in my head? And it's like, it's like, that that somehow is in my memory. But there you have it, for doing something righteous. Well, this guy is a tzaddik, he's a righteous guy. And the reason he's most likely a rich ruler is actually precisely because he had indeed kept the, the, the commands of God. Uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy, the last one, it says... If you keep the commands of God, you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. Your herds and flocks will multiply. So will the fruits of your womb, incidentally. This guy doesn't have a womb, but, you know, he, that's why he's, he's actually a tzaddik. He's kept the commands of God. So if anyone should get into heaven, surely it should be this guy. If anyone's worthy of inheriting eternal life, it's this rich young ruler. And the reason this uh, story would have been so striking and so memorable in the minds of the disciples is that contrary to all expectations, this rich young ruler is tried and found wanting. Continuing from verse 21, Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And of course, verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. His great wealth would have made for a very comfortable life. His great wealth would also have been something of a trophy for his genuine legalistic righteousness. And yet, like all wealth, it anchors him to the things of this world and prevents him from wholeheartedly following Jesus. And so he walks away sad. And then we get to the real guts of this little passage and the reason it's in Mark's Gospel, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, the disciples would hear this as being literally rich, yes, but also Righteous, how hard for the righteous to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples, understandably, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, again, notice, were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Basically, if the most righteous person we've ever met, apart from you, Jesus, can get into heaven, then what chance do any of us have? And so, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Friends, sadly, there are so many institutions and even denominations within Christendom that ignore this very clear teaching 
of Jesus. Despite the fact that a highly righteous person cannot be saved, despite the fact that salvation is not possible with man, on account of our innate and sinful defiance of God, for some reason we can't help but insist that we can be good enough on our own terms for God. If your past experience of church and has been about sort of being strict and authoritarian and about the rules, if your notion of Christianity is about rule-keeping and doing the right thing in the hope that you'll be good enough for God, then there's a very good chance that the church you know about or have been involved with, or the Christianity you think you know about, is actually not very Christian or not Christian at all. Keeping the rules, being a good moral person, cannot possibly be what Christianity is about. Because for the guy who kept the rules far better than you or I ever possibly could, salvation is still impossible. He cannot go to heaven. The head disciple, a guy called Peter, who's very lovable because he's so relatable, he's, of course, absolutely God-smacked and freaked out by this revelation. With man, it's impossible. And so he's, he's listen, you can almost hear the freak-outness of his words. Next verse, 10, 28, then Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. It's like, well, if this guy can't get in, we're stuffed and look, We've, we've left it all behind. I left my job. I've left my village in order to follow you, Jesus, and I got no hope. But then come the most wonderfully assuring and affirming words of Jesus. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Here's where you get it. But many who are first will be last and the last first, which is a little expression, a way of saying, many who you really expect, they're not going to get it. Many who you don't expect, they are going to get it. Now, there are two things I really want us all to notice in these words here. First, eternal life does come to those who follow Jesus. And that's because Jesus actually truly is God alone and he bestows his righteousness on those who follow him. How does he do that? Well, I said I'd be speaking about what's at the heart of Christianity. All of us could not say that we have kept those commands since we were a youth. Because all of us, in our heart of hearts, have decided, I want to live my own life my own way. I'm in charge, not God. And that is a horrible, sinful, rebellious defiance against him. And a holy God has wrath, has anger. And he's right to have anger. It's like you decided to live in a perfect house and never bother paying rent or speaking to the landlord and saying, get lost. It's that kind of arrogant defiance. And as a holy God, he will punish sin, and the punishment for sin is death. But Jesus willingly said, no, I will take that punishment. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a sin-bearing, wrath-bearing, wrath-turning-aside death. So instead of big missile heading toward little children, 
you've got big missile heading towards Jesus and he took the punishment that others deserve so that you can be forgiven. But not only that, God raised him from the dead and Jesus now sits at the right hand of God where his righteousness gets counted as ours. You can have the absolute righteousness of God and you do have it if you're a follower of Jesus. That's how you get eternal life, by the way. Not by being righteous, but by getting the righteousness that comes from Jesus. Second thing I want us to notice from these words here is that those who turn and follow Jesus gain far more than what they lose. You see the words, what do you gain? You know, the mothers, the brothers, the houses, the lands. I can tell you, I can testify from personal experience, this is the most wonderful thing about following Jesus. When our first son Eli was born... I was working at St. Michael's Anglican Cathedral in Wollongong. I was doing a, like a ministry apprenticeship there. That means I was involved in four congregations. Now, first child, someone who's, you know, a regular, one of the Christians here, you tell me, what happens, what does a church do for a family when they've just had a kid born? Someone tell me. Baby, Baby baskets, one, and? The meals, the meal roster, they feed them. In our case, because we had four congregations, right? <laughs> We got like two months where every night a new meal was just brought round to our house. And at one point, I remember my dad was there. He was visiting and, and so someone either did bring a meal or had bought one. And we said, you know, we don't need to worry about dinner. He said, where did that come from? Oh, just people at church. They bring... Did that happen every night? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long has it been going on? Oh, a few weeks. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, hadn't thought of such a thing, right? Many fathers, brothers, mothers, the community of the church family is one of the most attractive and wonderful things about being a follower of Jesus. There is a sharp edge to it as well, though. If you have got family members who are followers of Jesus, then there is always a good chance that there has been some kind of tension on account of the fact that the Christians in your family seem to prioritise their spiritual family over and above their biological family. Uh, Apart from my wife and, and, and my kids, the one other person I get on best with in my whole extended family happens to be the other one who's a follower of Jesus. The persecutions that inevitably come when people do follow Christ are reduced in their severity on account of the fact that we endure them together as a loving community of believers. Giving up your life in order to follow Jesus results in a profoundly satisfying experience of family. And the word we have for that is church. That's the word that's it's used to mean Christians when they're together. It's not a building, it's just Christians. People that have left everything to follow Jesus and therefore have his righteousness and have eternal life and have the immense joy of being united with one another. That's what church is. Friends, I joined the church when I was 19 through turning from being the boss of my own life and following Jesus and receiving the righteousness that God alone can give. And I have eternal life. There is no sin of mine, past, present or future, that has not been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And there is no need for me to perform to a certain standard in order to be made right with God because I am already made right with God. And I have the most profoundly rich and wonderful experience of a church family and I want that 
or everyone and anyone. I want that for you. Would you like to enter that experience now? In other words, would you like for your sins to be forgiven, to receive the righteousness of God alone, and to join his church? Well, if the answer is yes, you might want to, along with me in silence, pray the words that I'm about to pray out loud that are on the screen. I'm going to read them first. The words are, Dear God, I'm nowhere near good enough to inherit eternal life. Thank you that Jesus died so that all my sins could be forgiven. I want to receive Jesus' righteousness. So I now give up my whole life and I turn to follow him. Help me live with Jesus as my Saviour and Lord from now on. I'm going to pray that and just to keep it, you know, nice for everyone who might be feeling a bit self-conscious, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes. doesn't matter if this is something you want to pray or not, uh, but in the quietness of your mind and heart, you can echo my words if you want to become a follower of Jesus and you can give me a hearty amen at the end. Let's pray. Dear God, I am nowhere near good enough to inherit eternal life. Thank you that Jesus died so that all my sin could be forgiven. I want to receive Jesus' righteousness, so I now give up my whole life and I turn to follow him. Help me live with Jesus as my Saviour and Lord from now on. Amen. Now, it could well be the case that maybe for the first time you've prayed something like that and you've actually meant it. 17 years ago, I stood in front of a bunch of people and I said a bunch of words to a lovely young lady. I, Ben, take you, Stacy, to be my wife, to have and to hold... From this day forward, richer, poorer, sickness and health, better for... And, and how do you know that I meant those words? I could have just routed them off and just, yeah, whatever. But clearly I meant those words because, well, we're still married. Saying a bunch of words doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. But if you meant them, that's basically God calling you into his kingdom. What are you going to do from here on in? I'm going to invite up Jono.